here's the deal. Okay. I listened. I listened to Permission to Dance by BTS. The hot garbage. And watched yes. the video. Yes, yeah. I listened to Butter and watched the video. Yes. And then there's that third one you told me to listen to. What? Dope. Dope. Yeah, from 2015. Okay. Yeah. So listen to all those. Okay. Butter's obviously the best one. I mean, okay. Like, it's just hands down the best one. It's so, catchy. It's so good. It's been in my head all week, randomly. I'll just start singing, smooth, bye, butter. Uh, you know, it's so good. They look um, They look amazing in that video. They look. I'm like, how do I get skin like that? Like those boys. Do tell. Do tell. Millions of um, dollars. True. True, true, true. Uh, okay. I listened to Permission to Dance and I watched the video. Uh-huh. I don't hate it. Uh-huh. Right? It's not ob- objectively, without knowing the rest rest of their discography the sure. way that you do. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not my favorite song of theirs or of all time or anything like that because it there there are parts in the song where it sounds like it's building up to be a good song and you're like, here's the hook, it's coming, and it's like And then it doesn't happen. Oh no. It just never happens, no. right? So that's it's fine. Like it's a f- it's fine. Uh-huh. That's the thing is it's just Fine. Lizards, here's where I promise you that I'm going to be playing um, a variety of BTS songs once we're done recording. <laughs> Just to give MM some context as to why Permission to Dance is the garbage that it is. As I was driving home and stuck in traffic getting home, uh, I was listening to my BTS playlist on the way home and just... He- I hit some of my faves and I was just like, man, permission to dance is fucking garbage. Okay. It was fun to see them in their cowboy gear. They looked the beautiful gowns. Beautiful yeah. gowns. Yeah. 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 Just song is just, I don't know. For me, it's take it or leave it. I don't feel that strongly it's about just, it. I know you hate it. it. I'm acknowledging that your, your feelings are valid. Thank it's you. Fine. It's just, it's, and this is not to shit on anything that's very like bubblegum boy bandy, but that's really not what I feel like BTS is. Oh, what is, what is it? Do tell. Well, I'm mean, joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Oh, get Stop. ready. 2,000 years later. Lizards, welcome to episode <gasps> 38. Welcome. Um, welcome. 38. Um, before we get started, call to action for the lizards to please uh, rate, review, recommend us to your friends if you enjoy listening. Um, I feel like you don't need to know us to enjoy listening no. to us, to banter, etc. We're excellent aged millennial ants to recommend to your uh, Gen Z friends uh, to learn from our... Or, or millennial things. friends. Or millennial friends. I mean, I mean, millennial friends we would just bond with over the fact that... The world is not built for us. Um, to Gen X, we're just like those whippersnappers. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but yeah, so do rate and review. Hopefully a five-star rating. That would be lovely. But, you know, I'm not going to – I don't want to okay. tilt In the words review. of one of my favorite people, Josh Gondelman, as high, rate as high as your conscience will allow you. <laughs> <laughs> I love him so much. That's excellent. Um, so lizards this week, it is MM's turn and that's right. She has assured me that she's going to keep it to a tight three hours, tight three hours. Y'all this is, it's a lot. Okay. So Katie. Yes. Does this phrase mean anything to you? Okay. 
Pizza Bomber. No. Okay, fantastic. Fantastic. I mean, I wish we lived in a world where that didn't mean anything to anyone. To anyone, but here we are. The, okay, the word, content warning. The word pizza means a lot yes. to me personally. Of course, of course, as and, it should. And the word bomber scares me because I, I while I don't know the, the, with it combined with pizza, I do know it combined with Yuna. So <laughs> I'm not, yeah. like, psyched about yeah. it. Well, um, true to form, early 2000s, it was obviously a pivotal time in my life. I don't know. I keep finding these great stories. But this is the story of the death of Brian Wells, which was investigated in a Netflix documentary. It was a four-part docuseries called Evil Genius, the True Story of America's Most Diabolical Bank Heist from 2018. So there's both a bank heist and a death. Oh, there's there's even more than that. So here, I'm going to try and list out all of the content warnings for folks before we get into the details. You know I love a heist. Oh. Oh, this is a fucking heist, my friend. Uh, you're going to... This is... Okay, it's a lot. So number one, um, armed robbery. Number two, I mean, as you said, there is a, a bombing involved. Number three... Uh, we're going to get into some graphic details from the coroner's office. So if that kind of stuff is going to ick people, then maybe this isn't the episode for you. A coroner that's we, examining folks that have gone splode. And others. Okay. And others. Uh, lots of Ill- illegal drugs, uh, uses, selling, dealing. We're going to be talking about sex work. We're going to be talking about... What else could we possibly decriminalize have it? Oh. Decriminalize it. Yeah, I that may be. Oh, oh, we're going to be talking about hitmen. We're going to be talking. Are you right? Murder for hire. We're going to be talking about inheritances squandered and spent. We are going to be talking about all of these things. Oh, we're going to be talking a lot about mental illness. All of the and hoarders. That's my final content warning. And, hoarders and pizza and. Sure, there is mention of pizza. Oh, last one, animal cruelty. Okay. Oh, Jesus Christ. I think we've like ticked almost every box that there could so be. So now that no one else is listening, are we ready to get into it? I am uh, buckled in. Back to all the content warnings. Okay. Here we go. Okay, here we here go. Here we go. I'm braced. Part one. There are four parts, right? Because there are four four episodes. And so... I'm going to be going through the parts and you'll be like, surely we're at the end of a part and we will be nowhere near the end of a part. And you'll be like, is she still talking? Done. Yes. Done. Done. August 28, 2003. We are in Erie, Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. Go back to the Commonwealth. Here we go. A PNC bank is robbed by a man who is wearing a collar bomb. Oh, 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 excuse is this, yes. is this what they based that movie with Aziz Ansari off of? I I'm sorry, I'm not familiar. Thirty minutes or less, a 2011 American yes. comedy starring Jesse Eisenberg, Danny McBride, Aziz Ansari, and Nick Swartzen, loosely inspired by a similar true event. The plot follows a mm-hmm. stoner pizza delivery boy who's forced into wearing a bomb into forced to wear a bomb and rob a bank. So loosely, but let me tell you, 
Let me tell you. There's so much more. as juicy as this. There's so much more. so much more. Okay. Okay, so then. So, Brian. But just to be very clear. Yes. This did ring a bell, and I do remember that, but I don't know anything else okay. about the case. This is just, the, the bank heist is just the beginning of it. Okay. Let's just say Okay, that. so part, okay. part one, the heist. The heist. So the PNC Bank in Erie, Pennsylvania is robbed by a man wearing a collar bottom. The man is Brian Wells. He's 46. He's a pizza delivery man for his profession. He walks in with a cane and this collar around his neck. And you can see it's from the video footage. It it looks odd because he's clearly wearing a T-shirt over. Like he's wearing his T-shirt. Then there's the the collar bottom. And then there's another T-shirt over it to try to hide it. But there's a giant thing. On it, right, so he's not—he's not, he's not the hunchback of Erie, Pennsylvania. No, 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 no. Like he, yeah, right. It's, it's hiding so we nothing. La- no, we later learned that the the cane was actually a gun, but it was made to look like a cane. Okay, that's so he weird. It's weird, right? It's already weird. He hands the teller a note, which is not just a plain, like on a post-it, "Give me all your money." Mm-hmm. It's a very long nine-page rambling note okay so that's very odd and it kind of goes against what you think of when you think of a bank heist like you want to get in there and out of there right right he had so he had all these he had the long note he also had other notes on him there was a note for him that had instructions there was a note for him to give to the bank manager there was another note for him to give to the police right so he's got lots of long and rambling notes so the, that, note, so the thought is he's not going to get away. Like the police are going to show up and he has a note to provide to the police. Yes. Okay. He, or in, in the event the police capture him, he has a note for the police. He asked for $250,000. Okay. But they were, the teller was like, sir, that is literally impossible. In the amount of time the note was saying that she needed to get it. She was like, I literally can't do that, but here's what I can get you. Now she gave, gave him everything she could, but that was in her drawer, but it was, it was around $8,000. Okay. So Brian leaves the bank, and then he stops at McDonald's. Not what you think. He's not getting fries because he had to pick up a note that was in the drive-thru parking lot that was under a rock. So yeah, was that in his personal instructions? Because he has his personal note. Yes. And then his personal note says, go to McDonald's, pick up this thing that's under a rock, and then, okay. Yes. So I'm just going to tell you, right now we're just following his movements, and we'll go into the, the okay. details okay. later. So he goes south on Peach Street, which is also called Route 19, and all these cops see him. They spot his vehicle, and they pull him over in an eye a gla- eyeglass parking lot, like like a it was like an my eye doctor, but it was some other brand name, right? Yeah. yeah. And they handcuff this guy, right, because he just robbed a bank, mm-hmm. and he says something about a bomb. So. And so they sit, they follow protocol, right? They sit him down on the ground with his hands cuffed to isolate him. So he's on his knees and they all back away. And they're, he's basically in a field mm-hmm. near his car. And there's, I don't know, a thousand police cars kind of in a circle around him. And all the cops have their guns out and they're all trained on him. They said, you know, the first consensus they had was, is probably not real but you have to act like it's real okay that's just <laughs> they're probably about to run off and start a new life right but, but <laughs> uh-huh and they they said he was also he is speaking so calmly like he doesn't to the police. he does not seem either he's in shock 
or mm-hmm. he does not seem as upset and ready for this to be a bomb on him around his neck than he should. Right. So they're so they're saying another reason why they thought that maybe it was fake. it was not really a bomb was because he's being so calm about it when he's talking to them. So they're like, we can't tell if he is a willing participant in this thing or if he's a hostage because he seems a little nervous, but he doesn't seem agitated. Okay. Right. And you can hear him talking, and he's just literally like we're having a conversation now. Why? Why is no one trying to get this off of me? It's right. it's gonna go off. It's a bomb. So they call the bomb squad, which is 10 miles away from where they are. So in the process of calling the bomb squad, one of the things they have to do for protocol is to shut down the streets around there, which, of course, creates traffic problems, which, of course, creates problems for the bomb squad to actually get to the site. And because we live in America, this man who's handcuffed with a bomb around his neck saying very calmly, this bomb's going to go off, goes... Did you call my boss? As in, like, I need my boss to know what's going on here, that I'm not just, like, Yikes. missing work. His, his, bo- his boss meaning, like, his actual employer and not, like, yes. the person who put the bomb on him. Correct. Who his could, actual Who could technically employer. be his employer because... <laughs> right. We don't know at this point, right? So, no, his actual employer. So, okay. his employer was... Mama Mia's Pizzeria. Okay, I said it without laughing. There we go. Mama Mia's Pizzeria. My, my. How could I ever let you go? So, um, one, and this might be the only thing in the list, so I don't know why I'm saying one, but if this were, if I were to have a bomb around my neck, the last thing I give a shit about are my clients and employers. Uh, well, I'm just not going to. I, I agree. Just, I just don't care. They are going to have to deal with it. If I blow mm. up, if I don't blow <laughs> up and I'm just tied up for the day. <sighs> if someone emails me, hey, Katie, I have this very urgent graphic design issue. No, you don't. It is not as urgent. I have a, I have a bomb strap as the bomb my around my neck. I'm going to see if I can say it again without laughing. Oh, Mama, Mama Mia's, Mia's pizzeria. pizzeria. My mind. She had left that afternoon to deliver two small pepperoni and sausage pizzas to a remote abandoned radio tower when these people apparently basically took him as a hostage and said you know you have to go rob this bank we're gonna put this collar bomb on you i realized that pete i realized that pizzerias probably don't verify like if there's an address that works they probably don't verify it but Jesus yeah. Christ, it was an abandoned, like, what could be more? Remote abandoned. Ra- I would have been like, sorry, out of my radius, right? right? <laughs> like, sorry, no, no, no. So, oh, it gets better though, Katie, because okay. when the police were trying to ask him about who, who these people were that forced him to do this, what they look like, all he could say was they were black. He couldn't give any other description except they were black. Not even... Yeah. Okay, Mm-mm. so and then one of the the officers was saying, "You know, in your heart, when they're doing the interview, you know, in your heart, there's probably not a black person involved in any of this, but that's what people say." <laughs> Awful. So then you're watching the news footage. So this dude, so this dude is not just underneath a collar of bomb, but is also a racist. Just wait for it. Okay, just wait for it. So the beeps. Coming from the the collar and the bomb. 
start going faster and oh, faster. Oh no! You know, and he's that... saying he is this at this point. His his voice is getting elevated, but he still doesn't sound insane or anything. He's just saying it's gonna go off. I'm not lying. So it sounds the, it sounds like he's playing a particularly high stakes game of um, catchphrase. So he's you know it's not like it's yes. about to explode, but like hey, we're gonna lose this point if you don't guess that I'm trying to get you to guess Susan Lucci right now. Correct. Okay. And then some of the police officers interviewed said, "I don't think he realized it was real until it started beeping that fast." Okay. And you can hear it beeping. In the footage. And then in the footage, and then it blows up. No! And there is footage. Now, I will give it to the producers, editors, whoever for Netflix. They did a good job of blurring things out, but you can also still clearly tell that it blew up. That there's chunks. And that he is dead. Oh, he is dead. There's chunks. I'm not I'm not talking about I'm not neither confirming nor denying whether there were chunks. Oh no. So I when... thought, I didn't know this was gonna oh, okay. I would like okay. to I actually pull that back. I did know this mm-hmm. was gonna stop there or enter there because I do now also remember that BuzzFeed Unsolved did an episode on this. So at some point in the past few years I have heard and then forgotten all of these details. You've tried to forget all of this. So now uh, right? I'm going to bring it up. You're not going to forget it now. And there's also so much more. Like okay. I said, this is, this is the beginning. Right. So at the time that the bomb went off, the bomb squad was four blocks away. Oh, my God. Still not there because of traffic. Right. So they get there. Their evaluation was, it was evident that he was deceased at that time. Oh, okay, yes. I mm. No shit. Yes. Well, I guess they have to make sure, right? Because then they say they have to go up and examine him and they have to see whether there's anything else explosive on him or whether there, right, anything else is going to go off. Uh-huh. So they, and then they have to go and search through his car to see if there's anything else in there that's yeah, going to yeah. explode. And they said he still had a big part of the device around his neck. And so the thing is, they call it a collar bomb, but really what it was was there There was a metal collar. The metal collar was attached to the bomb that was kind of around his the upper part of his chest. So the bomb wasn't in the collar, but that's just neither so, here nor That's just so you so know. So what exploded then? Because I feel like a collar bomb... The thing that's... The part that was strapped to his upper chest is what exploded. So the thing around his neck was still intact, but the, this yes. area was gone. Yeah, that yes, that's a good. She's pointing at her ample bosom, by the way. Excuse, <laughs> excuse. Ample is a. Uh... <laughs> this is why. Okay, I'm going to talk a lot about booby traps. I'm going to talk a lot about booby traps here. Is this why you texted me about booby traps randomly? Yes, yes, y'all. MF sends me the most random ass text, which, you know, we're good by Coastal Besties bonding over wine and mysteries here at 26 minutes in. I'm giving you our intro. Um, I get this random text that goes, you know, they should just call bras booby traps. 
boom, boom. And I thought that was a good enough joke. And I was like, that's what because like what you like, like there's a buzzer in there. So if someone tries to get fresh, it buzzes you. And and I was like, no, because they literally trap your boobs. Like you're making this way too hard. And I was like, oh, ha ha. And that was the end of it. And I didn't ask about context or anything. And now we're coming on back. To... Are you bringing it back? Bringing it back around. Okay. So they have to go through his car, look yeah. to see if anything else is going to go explode. Uh, they find, okay, they find more notes in his car, one of which is a very detailed scavenger hunt that he's supposed to go on to find the keys to take off the collar bomb. So, um, and these notes, they show pictures of them. They are detailed they are full page written notes there is writing there's drawing of maps there's doodles of like this is what the sign here looks like and basically he's supposed to go to four different locations to find clues that send him to other locations so that he can get the keys the bomb squad found the second clue so then the bomb squad takes over right so they're like okay we're gonna follow the rest of the scavenger (laughs) quote unquote scavenger, the worst scavenger hunt ever mm-hmm. to get the quote unquote clues and see like what else we can find. So he had already gone to the first spot, which was the McDonald's drive through, right? And gotten the note from under a rock. They went, they found the second clue in a coffee can on the side of a road in accordance with the notes. Then he was supposed to go to a third location. They drive up to that location. They found orange tape on a tree that said, Vietnam on the orange tape. So, so weird. While they're looking at this, they don't see anything else there. A dark blue minivan starts try starts driving toward them. And then it got into range enough that the driver looked surprised, hesitated, backed the fuck up, and took off. But the car was so far away from them, and it was... So they're off the side of the road... The minivan looked like it was coming through like a field and a farm and it just backed up. So like they couldn't actually physically drive to where the van was. So, like you know, the van just got away. The minivan just got away. Oh, and there were three different police jurisdictions, jurisdictions working on this. Right. So there's the ATF is there for the explosives. Mm-hmm. The FBI was involved because it was a bank robbery. And then the state police because it happened in Pennsylvania. So that night, they get a search warrant to go and look at Brian Wells' house. Okay. They said there wasn't a whole lot inside. They showed pictures of the search. I thought it looked a little bit like a shithole, but it's nothing compared to what we're going to see later in, oh. on in the series. So, But also, just to, to be totally fair, I don't know if it looked like that because they had been searching through the house or oh, if that was just the way the house looked. They said they really couldn't find anything there that would tie him or link him to the activities that day or anything that looked suspicious. The only thing they really found was an address book with the names and numbers of local prostitutes in there. But there was no physical evidence to link him to the bombing. I don't know anything about how you contact a sex worker, but like I'm just like, well, like a physical contacting ad- a sex worker in 2003. Right, but just, like, the idea of, like, a little, like, Lisa Frank <laughs> address book is just tickling me a little bit. Like, here's where I get my sex. It's from here. That, right. And the unicorn protects the information. Right. It was also not a small 
list. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, no judgment is what it is. There we are. So his body didn't make it to the coroner's office until 3 a.m. the next day. And this is where one of the big content warnings comes in. I'm going to wait for you to finish that popsicle. You finish that popsicle. Hey, listeners. How's it going? Katie's eating right now, so I don't want to tell her what's coming next until she's done with what she's eating. And it's a popsicle, so she can't eat it quickly. She'll freeze her brain and her teeth. <laughs> I definitely just slowed down, too. I was like... <laughs> huh. Uh, so obviously, having... I'm not going to say the actual thing until you're done with the popsicle, okay? I'm just going to work my way up. Okay. So the coroner is being interviewed. And he's saying, we didn't want to disrupt what was left of the collar bomb, right? Because uh-huh. primarily it's it's some of the only evidence they have in sure. the case. Also, everyone's super worried about their safety. Yeah. Understandable. So they had to make a decision as to how to get it off and examine his body. So... They ended up deciding they had to do a surgical decapitation. There's literally nothing else to say there except that the coroner goes on to say it was a really difficult decision and it's very difficult to describe, but it was done in the most caring way possible. He looked so uncomfortable, Tom, which of course... Yeah, that's not why you go to medical school. Mm-mm. Right? Like, no. you know, in his wildest dreams, did he ever no. think he was going to have how to... Does, how surge, does, it, how like, does that person sleep? How does he close his eyes and sleep? And, like, he comes back late. We'll talk to him again. Don't worry. He gets okay. more uncomfortable things he has okay. to deal with later. Wonderful. So his landlord said he was a great tenant. He paid on time. He was described as being very nice and friendly by his neighbors. Sure. The landlord said that sometimes he'd take his mother to the movies for the free Uh. concerts they had in town, and that he also liked scavenger hunts, and that apparently it was a thing in the Erie newspaper called a key hunt, where they would hide a key somewhere around Erie, and they would put clues in the paper um, to lead people to where the key was, and so it it was, he really liked that, and he was all, but she said he never actually found the key, but he really enjoyed... The scavenger hunts. Okay. This is not meant to be disrespectful, obviously. Like, the usual true crime discussion, you know, waivers and caveats here. But, like, mm-hmm. how into scavenger hunts do you have to be for that to be your brand with, like, your landlord? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like my... Okay, also, his his landlord was this older lady, so it's also kind of like, but what do you choose to talk about with your landlord? That's true. You know what I mean? Is he going to talk about his Lisa Frank notebook? But it just, it takes a while to establish a brand, right? Like if you were to, like if I were to be collar bombed or go missing or whatever, and you were to talk to my landlord. Mm -hmm. Werewolves. (laughs) Werewolves is not my brand. (laughs) That was a joke from last night where we watched a great movie. We did watch a great movie. Werewolves Within. And I said we should watch it because Werewolves was Katie's brand and she (laughs) I was just like, excuse the biggest look. me? Werewolves I didn't are mean not it in a twilight. Brand. I did not mean it in a twilight way. I my meant brand it in... is zombies and T-Rexes. Not necessarily together, but if they are together, cool. That would be a great movie. Um, 
But yeah, it just takes a while to establish your brand. So if you were to talk to my landlord right now about me, I think he would probably mention my cat. And I think that's all he'd know without like looking around the room and saying things that he saw. I love carpet. I love desk. Brick, are you just looking at things in the office and saying that you love them? I love lamp. Do you really love the lamp or are you just saying it because you saw it? I love lamp. I love lamp. You know? <laughs> So, okay, look, I'm just going to say for the last time, it was because of your love of Teen Wolf, not because of Twilight. <laughs> Thank That's you. All. That's Thank all. Thank you for establishing Anytime. that. I want everyone to know. Anyway, early Back teen, to the heist. Early Teen Wolf. But um, <laughs> late Teen Wolf is a hot garbage mess. Um, anyway, but my point is, I think it's pretty... I'm trying to imagine these conversations where... He loves scavenger hunts, becomes his brand with his landlord. I have lots of easily identifiable brands, but my landlord is not going to know them. He's going to know the fact that he has stopped by <laughs> and seen that there's a cat in my home. And then anything else is going to be from things he can easily spot. Like, yes, the fact that I have like a Pikachu Funko Pop, he'd be like, she loves Pokemon. I mean... I'm neutral. Not wrong. On, I mean, I'm neutral on Pokemon. I just really like Detective Pikachu quite a bit. And so I have a Deadpool and a Pikachu Funko, which I think pair well together because they're both Ryan Reynolds. So, like, I just think. Look, I'm your just... landlord knows other stuff about you, too. Your credit score, whether you're paying on time. I am paying. On time. Whether you're keeping trash in your house or not. I'm not. Whether. Toothless Joe is camping out in your backyard. I don't think my landlord knows about Toothless Joe, frankly. Oh, um, really? Yeah. I, mm. I, don't, I don't think... Probably for the best. I don't think Toothless Joe stopped and talked to him. I think Toothless Joe just approached me. Because Toothless Joe has a brand and it's not your landlord. It's you. I, I didn't mean to derail this much, but I just, I just think it's so funny that like the landlord, like he really likes scavenger hunts. He was nice to his friends. He took his mother out to the movies that he likes scavenger hunts. Oh, okay. That okay. he never actually solved, apparently, which Aww. I thought was the saddest thing. Okay. The investigators are also replaying the footage from the bank. Sure. And, and they're saying, again, it's odd about how calm he was in yeah. the bank. He actually even stood in the line to talk to the teller for a little bit before he eventually, like, just went up to the front and, like, gave the note. He took a lollipop from the basket and was, like, eating the lollipop. And they say... That's bizarre. They showed, they, it is weird. And they say, and they showed this image, when he walked out of the bank, he had... Remember, he had his cane that turned out to also be a gun. And he had a bag with the money in it. And he was kind of, they said, swinging the cane and walking, like... Imagine like Charlie Chaplin doing that little walk. What a beautiful the cane. morning! It was like, just weird, what? right? Like he's so he's so calm in the bank. So the story about the call for the pizza was that his final pizza delivery was that it, it the call came in to Mama Mia's Pizzeria. I cannot say it without laughing. My mind at one thirty. Yep. How can I forget you? One thirty that afternoon from a shell station. That was near where the, the delivery slash drop-off site was for the pizzas. So it was coming from a payphone at a shell station. Um, the manager had answered the phone to take the order, but 
had a hard time understanding who was on the phone. So he handed the phone to Brian. And then Brian was like writing down the directions for how to deliver these pizzas because, again, delivering them to a remote abandoned radio tower. Mm-hmm. So the investigators go out to where he supposedly delivered the pizzas. They found tire impressions there that matched Brian's vehicle. Um, they saw his shoe impressions and they showed some, there were some scuff marks in the ground where there was obviously a struggle. But otherwise, they said that they had like no luck on any forensics for fingerprints coming off of what was left of the bomb. They really couldn't find, they couldn't find any other DNA evidence, just physical evidence, which I guess is an unfortunate side effect of when there is an explosive device. Being blown up. So Brian's family was obviously not happy about the decision from the coroner to, and how they handled the collar bomb removal and well not just that but they were like look when you look at the footage that they learned about this on the news like everybody else they said you could the office see the officers are pointing their guns at him even though he's handcuffed and he can't go anywhere or do anything he's cooperating with them he's doing exactly what they're asking him to like why are they pointing their guns at him instead of working on getting the bomb squad there like why was there no ambulance coming there um, if they, he says that there's this bomb strapped to him, mm-hmm. you know, and, and most of all, they're like very, very obviously upset that they couldn't have an open casket funeral for him. And they never got to see him again, essentially. And they said that there was more respect that was shown for the bomb than there was for his body, which is absolutely true. All of this happened on August 28th. On Sunday, August 31st, oh, oh, Moxie, ah! <laughs> the bank, okay, the bank heist happened on August 28th. Yes. On August 31st, Bob Panetti who was a co-worker of Brian Wells at, at Mamma Mia. Mia Pizzeria. Okay. I'm going to say that as many times as I can. Why am I? Was discovered unresponsive by his family at his residence. There were no signs of a stroke, a heart attack, or any obvious physical ailments that they could see. Um, they did say that his actions changed after the bombing, that he got very, very nervous. He started saying he was looking for protection Mm -hmm. he mentioned to a few people that they were coming for him next the police wanted to talk to him that weekend and he asked the police if he could move his interview to monday but he was found deceased on sunday evening bob had a drug addiction oh wow did he od which they said was not really unusual in that area and like that's a huge problem just everywhere but they said that they weren't sure. They, they thought maybe he was already had this drug addiction and then he had all this perhaps extra anxiety mm-hmm. around the events that happened to his coworker. So maybe it was an accidental OD because maybe he was trying to compensate by taking more. Mm-hmm. But they just weren't sure. They're like, well, this is super suspicious. Did he play a role in the heist? Did he maybe set Brian up to deliver those pizzas that day? Mm-hmm. Or... Is this just a separate death and completely unrelated? So 
the investigators started thinking up three different scenarios. They said, one, this was Brian Wells' idea. He did this all on his own, committed the robbery on his own. Number two, Brian Wells was abducted and forced to perform the robbery. Or number three, Brian Wells and Bob Panetti, who were co-workers and also apparently would go gambling together sometimes, perhaps they planned the robbery together. I mean, while all three of those occurred to me, Mm -hmm. and that kind of does dovetail with Brian being so calm, like Mm -hmm. if if it's a hoax, then like... But if it's a hoax, one, why is it a real mom? And right, yeah, that seems like a big misfire. And two. Oof, that was bad. I didn't even mean for that. Ooh, ooh, sorry. Ooh, yeah. Pun not intended. Oof, ouch. Sorry, sorry, sorry. We're not even all the way through the first episode, so there's clearly more to come. Oh, my God. So, so the police have, those are the three running theories at the time. Okay. So the police break up into two investigation teams. The first team was called, their words, not mine, the prostitution team. And so they began to look at the list of sex workers that Brian had in, in, written in, in his Lisa Frank diary yes, in his yes. room. And they thought, they began to quote-unquote run a suspect that was a boyfriend of one of these women who was African-American, and he had a background in explosives that he gained through the Army, but then they said they said he looked good, but then they said, but there's literally no evidence to connect him to any of this. Mm-hmm. The second team was the Mama Mia Pizzeria team. My, my. And they were formed. My, my. How can I forget you? They were formed <laughs> to, inve- to investigate a former war- employee who was disgruntled, and he had previously threatened the owner of the Mama Mia Pizzeria. Okay. But he had a really good alibi for that day, and it turned out that those two things were just completely unrelated. We're hitting some walls here. Yeah. Or nowhere. We have lots of good theories. I mean, they were good theories, but they're kind of, yeah, they're not really going anywhere. So the ATF guys take over. They say, first of all, let's talk about this cane gun. They said, it was loaded, and it would have fired if somebody had shot it. And so whoever built this, because it's clearly not something you can go to your local is gunnery? It, like, is it something Armory? that you go to, like, a, like a spy... Sporting goods store? No, it was it was home it was homemade. So they're saying whoever made this is very competent in woodworking and they're good with metal. And this is clearly not the first one that they have made. So they would have made other ones, and they probably would have shown it to other people. So if you've ever had that one weird friend who showed you that thing they made, please come forward and tell us. And they said, okay. So based off of this, they're saying this person's probably very patient. Mm-hmm. They're probably deceptive and secretive, and control is, like, very, very important to them. Okay. So then they start looking at the actual bomb itself. So we're talking to this ATF guy who is, he looks like a government agent, like buzz cut, square jaw. He's He's been doing, he is in the ATF doing basically bomb forensics is what he does. So, mm-hmm. so again, this bomb, he said... One of the things you do when you're trying to do forensic investigations on something like this is you're trying to match the tools that could possibly have made something like this. Mm-hmm. And he says to this day, they couldn't match any of the tools that were used to make this bomb. They couldn't find anything. So they assembled what they believed to be an accurate replica of the bomb based off of, they said they thought they collected about 90% of the bomb from what was left over after the explosion. Okay. 
Um, they estimated it would have taken about a month to make this bomb. And the really weird thing about this was that there were a lot of red herrings that were incorporated into the bomb to make. And they said they thought it was, number one, to prevent the bomb squad from tampering with it and trying to disarm it. There were wires that didn't mean anything. There were cell phones that were incorporated. This is wild. Uh, Yeah, there were cell phones incorporated into it that also didn't mean anything, that weren't technically connected to anything. He's like, it looks very, very sophisticated. But at the end of the day, it's two pipe bombs with two timers. And there were even written notes that were warnings that matched the written notes that Brian Wells had with him that he took into the bank and in his car that mention booby traps like the cell phone and wires there. But again, they're saying we just couldn't match any of the tools that made this thing. So we're just completely perplexed about this. And the the other really, I thought, interesting thing was the back panel of the bomb. They said it was cut like a checkerboard. So the idea was when the bomb went off that it would, I didn't know shrapnel was also a verb, but they're saying it would make, the metal shrapnel, mm-hmm. right? So it would be super, I mean, it was obviously deadly enough, but, right, but the idea the was that it, right. However, the score, however. However. The score, however, the scoring wasn't deep enough to actually make it fully shrapnel, but it still caused one inch deep wounds, which is what ultimately killed Brian when the bomb went wow. off. Wow, so the explosion itself didn't. And that there were four keyholes in the collar with two different locks and one tumbler lock that kept the whole bomb in place. And they, after looking at all of this and putting this together, they thought the whole scavenger hunt itself was just a red herring and a diversion so that the police would be busy going down all the steps for the scavenger hunt instead of doing other important investigation. The sca- and so on to the scavenger hunt, which they thought was really just a big red herring. Right, right, Detectives drove the route that the scavenger hunt would take you on. And if you look at a map where Erie is, it's sandwiched between Ohio and New York State, right? Because it's like this upper bumpy part of Pennsylvania. Yeah, the upper the upper left corner. <laughs> Thank you. Is it... It's not a panhandle, is it? Never mind. No, it is a rectangle. There's no handle. (laughs) They said that actual PNC bank, if you go 20 minutes in either direction, you will be in Ohio or New York State. The scavenger hunt, though, takes you in a big circle around Erie if you go to each of the four locations. And when they drove that scavenger hunt to each of the four locations, they determined there was no way that he could have finished that scavenger hunt by the time the bomb detonated. So they were right. like, this was just to keep him busy or us busy. Right. So did he know? So maybe, I don't know if we know this. Did he know how much time he had? Or was it literally just like he had a, a set amount of time? He was doing the pieces he was trying to do. He, yes. he had the police basically slowed him down. It got yes. to the point where he exploded and he couldn't finish yes. the scavenger. Okay, yes. gotcha. But yes. they're saying that even if that hadn't happened, he would not have been able to finish the scavenger hunt Correct. Time. Okay. Correct. The FBI was looking at the notes, and when you look at them, the handwriting looks really neat and unique, as in like kind of like block letters and just, I was actually thinking like, wow, someone like very methodically did this, but mm-hmm. it looked that way because what the person had done was typed out the notes 
and then traced over the typewritten note. God, so, so, much, so much effort. So much effort. So you're not going to be able to match handwriting, right? right? Because that's not the person's actual handwriting. Uh, but what they were able to do is look at images that were pressed into the paper, right? Because it was obviously taken from another notepad where the person had been writing other things. Um, so they could see some things there. They found a couple of phone numbers and some writing, but apparently it, those leads didn't lead anywhere mm-hmm. either. And the statistic was that they gave was that two, two to 3% of bank robberies in the U.S. are done with explosives, but only 1% of them are ever done with a live device. So this is like a very rare thing anyways. Yeah. So at this point, they have no forensic evidence to go off of. They have no DNA. They have no fingerprints. They've got no leads. So the profilers are kind of getting into this and they say, okay, the mastermind behind this bank heist could have just had Brian Wells' death in mind all along and that maybe the money wasn't the motive. Maybe the death of this individual was the motive instead um, because when you think about it, even besides the bomb going off, right, this could also end up being like a suicide, not a suicide by a cop. But I mean, if you're robbing a bank with a bomb around your neck, too, even if the bomb doesn't go off, I, I would say there's a good chance the police are going to get you anyways, right? Right, right, right. So they're saying the person involved is probably frugal, mechanically inclined, could hide a very violent nature, obviously, Um but because there was no forensic evidence involved, it would have to involve someone telling a secret or coming forward for them to be able to solve this. And that was the end of part one, the heist. We dun, have dun, three dun. other parts to go through. Part two is called The Frozen Body. So, so far we've had Brian Wells is deceased. Bob Panetti, his co-worker. Deceased, and part two is called the frozen body. So, and and Bob Panetti, they decided was an overdose. Uh, That's how yes. he died. Yes, eventually they decided yes, this was an overdose. Okay, but again, they don't know. Was it because it was just an overdose? Was, was he it linked? an accident? Was it suicide? Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Was he just overridden with guilt or anxiety from the events? They don't know. So they're still trying to piece that together. So again, the PNC Bank was robbed. End of August, August 28, 2003. Three weeks after he died, or that in that incident, the bank heist, someone named Bill Rothstein calls the Erie police, and he says, very calm voice, he just says, at 8645 Peach Street, there is a body in the freezer, in the garage, and you need to come here, and you need to talk to the woman who is there, and her name is Marjorie Deal what so now i'm going to tell you just a little bit of background about marjorie yeah because that's a that's a big that's a big intro that's a big bomb drop no pun intended of just like by the way there's a body (laughs) and and again in a totally calm voice kind of like how brian was so calm in the videos of when he was in in the bank in the pnc robbing it just so calm you need to come to this address there's a body in the freezer and in the garage, and you talk to this woman there. Her name's Marjorie. It's so like. P.S. Those... It was his house. He didn't oh, just say, it? Come to my house. He was like, Come to this address. And they're like, What is that? And he's like, Is that your house? He's like, Oh, yeah, yeah, that's my house. That makes it seem extra sus, but 
Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where like how calm they are really suggests to me that they're involved and something went awry. Versus... Well, there is a body in his freezer and it's not like he was going to get some ice cream and was like, oh shit, Whoa, there's a body this? in my freezer. Right, but I mean, also, I, mean, I mean also with Brian Wells of just like if yes. you're that yeah, calm, agreed. it's like, how are you involved? Mm-hmm. Because... I I don't I mean I don't know how shock in this situation would work, but I feel like it wouldn't be like there's a bomb around my collar and it's gonna go off. So I feel like it's no like I don't know. It just it just makes everyone involved in this seem very sus. And if Rothschild is like trying to be sneaky and be like come to this location, it's like you gotta do better, bro, because I immediately (laughs) think that you did everything. So, a little, little bit of background here about our friend Marjorie. Okay. And she was an only child. She was spoiled by her parents. She would go fishing with her dad, Harold, when he wasn't on the road for his job selling aluminum siding. And her mom, Agnes, died in 2000. So, growing up, they said she was kind of awkward and lonely, but she was also beautiful and super-duper smart. She graduated top of her class in high school. She went on to college and then got her master's in education. And that men, everyone found her captivating and charismatic, but men especially just found her like very captivating. Well, she was smart, but she also suffered from mental illness for most of her life. And when she was 23, she was having enough issues that that forced her to go see a therapist. And I feel like that was at a time probably in the 60s, that a lot of people weren't just like going to therapy. So I feel like it must have been pretty serious. And one of the things she apparently told the doctor was that she was most sad about her inability to have close friendships, which made me really sad. She was eventually diagnosed as bipolar, but they said that she also potentially had some issues with mania and narcissism Mm -hmm. and uh, a personality disorder. So there's a bunch of different things on the table there that they weren't quite sure what the issue was other thing to know about Marjorie was that most men in her life didn't last very long. She was married to her husband, Richard Armstrong, but he died when he fell and hit his head on the coffee table in their house. And somehow out of all of this, she ended up suing the hospital that he went to and got $175,000 settlement out of that. She asked for a piece of his leg bone in case she could clone him in the future. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to like. <laughs> yeah, you let, did. Like a, like a, like a, a, a goofy laugh. That was, that was a better reaction um, than I had. I believe my reaction was the fuck, leg bone specifically, and another boyfriend of hers hung himself after she moved out. And all in all, there were at least five men in her life that romantically that she was tied to that died under what they described as unnatural circumstances. Yes, what that's the right the face. Fuck? I know. So she is a villain. Okay, so back to Bill. So uh, we're interviewing a Pennsylvania state trooper who says, yeah, he's just kind of, like, who has known Bill for a long time? Because it's eerie, and apparently everybody knows everybody. Mm-hmm. He, and he described him as just, he's just this eccentric character around town who thinks he's smarter than the average person, right? So he's asking him questions about this whole body in the freezer sitch. And he says the guy in the freezer is Marjorie's ex. 
Bill then claims he's afraid of Marjorie because she is mentally ill and she is bipolar. Claims that Marjorie killed the guy and asked him to help out after he was killed. She needed to get rid of the body. So he put the guy in his freezer, but now Marjorie was insisting that they needed to get rid of him by either putting him in a wood chipper or a meat grinder. And Bill was saying, I can't do that. You got to come here and get her. I there just, was a lot that I just said in like two sentences. There's there. there's so much to unpack there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he helped her put. So this is his. This is his address. This is his yes. freezer that can fit a body. This is his murder shed, if you will. It, murder shed slash garage, but yeah, murder mm-hmm. garage. Yes. So he yeah. puts the body in there, and he's fine there. But it's it's when the body's gonna leave there, he's just like, no, no, no. Look, there are limits Incorrect. To, to what he will do for this woman, apparently. He would do anything for love, but he won't do that. But he won't do that. <laughs> turns out, now we know exactly what Meatloaf was talking about. He won't meat do grind that. slash wood chip, wood chip a frozen body of his love's ex, who we still don't know how they died. Correct. But we assume Marjorie did it. Right. He just says that Marjorie killed this guy, but he, he doesn't say. This has to have something to do with the Brian Wells incident because this address that he then admitted was his home is near the pizza delivery drop off site at the remote abandoned radio tower. And they show a map and it is on Peach Street. Which, again, was also, I believe, where the PNC Bank was. Apparently, there's one road in Erie, and it's called Peach Street. And they show they show um, Bill's house, where you turn off at Bill's house, which is the address where you ask the police to come, and there's a body in the garage. You keep going down this road that turns off, it goes past Bill's house, off of Peach Street, and that is where the abandoned radio tower site is. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so they're like, this has to have something to do with this. So then they have, yeah, yeah. She's everyone. I want all of our lizards to know. My co-host, Katie, my bicoastal bestie, is laughing. She's so close to laughing she can't form words. She's almost crying over the fact that there is a body in the garage. I'm just imagining. Let's just say. Uh, let's say, hypothetically speaking. Hypothetically. You had a body. Mm-hmm. But also wanted to do a weird heist with a collar bomb. And then, like, used, like, that haunted house down the way from you <laughs> as, like, a pizza drop-off point. Like, that's what right. I'm imagining. The it's just sort of like, I'm road, doing yeah. all these other shenanigans. Everything's okay. fine. Okay, I'm so just, I'm just imagining you're we're doing... We're imagining. These, I'm imagining you're doing all these other shenanigans. But yeah. also, let's do this weird heist. And instead of picking a drop point unrelated to you whatsoever, it's like, no, let's not make sure. this inconvenient. Let's just put it straight down the road. <laughs> you know, traffic is a real bitch. You I know, don't I, just, I don't. I literally just want to walk there and get my pepperoni and sausage right? pizza. Because one and type st- And strap of, a bomb to someone. One type of very salty, fatty meat isn't enough for me. I need both. 
I need both on two small pizzas, please. Not one medium pizza that has them both, but two smalls. Not even one large, but there must have been a deal on two smalls. <laughs> Pepperoni and sausage. Okay. Sorry, I didn't I didn't mean to no, lose my no, mind no. there. So then of course when you have this kind of conversation on the phone with the police, they're gonna videotape your interview. Thank God we have this treasure on videotape. Uh yeah, he just says Marjorie had a body in her house. She wanted it removed. So she said she murdered him. Yeah. Ha ha ha. It was a dark and stormy night and she she murdered this guy. <laughs> and I would so do anything cuts. for love. But I won't do so, that. Right. But I won't do that. So then it cuts to the evidence footage of them going through Bill's house because mm-hmm. he has to walk them through to the body and sure. the freezer. Again, Katie... This is a shithole. Like, watching this, I found it hard to breathe. That people actually live like this. There are papers, bags, food, boxes everywhere. They they described it, the the person that was there with him that night described it as hoarders times 10, which I think is an (laughs) accurate description. Yep. So they make their way back. To the garage and they're in the garage which you can barely move around and it's a huge it's not like the garage in my house that we're like you can barely fit the cars in there this is like i guess this is a garage in erie i don't know it's just like a huge like almost like a separate building garage right huge fuck off garage got it got it, got it. there is a large tarp hanging from the ceiling and then you pull the tarp back and the freezer's back there against the back wall a tarp is never good. No, tarps are not used for good things. No. No, no, no. no. People no. will try to fool you and tell you that they're good for camping to keep the rain off your tent, but let me tell you, no. That's a lie. That doesn't even work. No. No, no, no. no. So, get ready for this. The oh, um, embraced. Embraced and ready. The police described the body in the freezer being Wrapped up like a side of beef. They go back into Bill's house. like butcher paper and twine? Is that what we're talking about? We'll find out. I don't know how sides of beef are. (laughs) I'm a vegetarian. I don't know. (laughs) I've never purchased a side of beef. Okay. Well, this will make you want to be a vegetarian if you're not everybody. So, So, okay. Yes, there is a body here. This is not a crank call. Okay, great. So they go back into the house. Marjorie is upstairs ranting and raving on a bed. They put her under arrest. She is saying Bill killed the guy in the freezer. The state trooper who actually transported her to their facility, they kept calling it some weird, the ba- they kept calling it the barracks and not like the police station or the jail. I don't know. They called it weird. the barracks. He says the hardest part about all of this was that she hadn't bathed in quite a while. He said he didn't know if it was days or weeks, but oh, no. it was only a 15 minute ride back to quote unquote the barracks to go to the interrogation room. But he said it was a really difficult 15 minutes and he had the air conditioner on like full blast and it was not helping the situation. Roll, the, roll those windows down. That's what I was thinking too. And that apparently she was also... He said it was a, it was apparent that she had mental health is, issues and that she was talking to herself the whole time. However, however, they showed pictures of her from the police station that night or the barracks, whatever, that night. She was talking to herself 
But I wouldn't have seen her doing that and said, like, oh, she has mental health issues. She was just kind of going off about how, like, she didn't do this and Bill was the guy and they had the wrong person. You know, kind of what you would assume, like, if this was a movie, okay, this was kind of a movie, but if this was fictional, that this is, like, how you would write someone who's being carted off to jail, right? Like, I've been framed, like, that kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. So, like, um, like, at the end of The Jinx... Mm-hmm. When, um, yes. When he's yes. like, what did I do? I killed them all, of course. Yes. It was like that, but the opposite. Okay. <laughs> she was like, it wasn't me. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. So, okay, Shaggy. Shaggy gets to talk to the coroner again. Okay. Here's the content warning. We're talking to the coroner again, everybody. Oh, God. So, the body in the freezer, he says, was, yes, it was frozen completely solid. Who was there for a while. And he was also frozen to the side of the freezer. So they had to move the entire freezer to the coroner's office. And that the body was wrapped up in the fetal position and completely frozen. So they had to thaw and defrost everything until the body could be removed from the freezer He said, much like you might have to defrost your refrigerator or your freezer, it was four days before the coroner (laughs) could perform an exam. And let me tell you, Katie, there were videos of them taking him out of the freezer. Encino Man has betrayed me. Oh, yeah. Um, So Encino Man has led me to believe that no, when you're sawing someone out, it's just like a super gorgeous. Brendan I was gonna say this Frazier. guy also did not look like Brendan Fraser. I'm so in his prime. I am so sorry. <laughs> so sorry. Um, they could tell though once they were able to do the exam that he was shot with a shotgun. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So cutting back to the interview with Bill, he says Marjorie calls me and says. Jim is dead. Asked for help. She says she needs the body out of her house. I put it in my freezer. Figured I would just do this to like placate her and buy me time to think about what I needed to do. So the Saturday that he, before he called the police, she said she wanted the body to be destroyed and I just couldn't go through with it. So I wrote up a list of what we could do do and like all the materials that we would need saying that we would need to buy all these times but again it was just to stall for time sure because she because she'd be crazy is what basically what he was saying to the mm-hmm. police and you, you know how women are she'd be crazy so i was just trying to like stall so i could call you guys the fbi said after talking to the coroner they believe that the ex was killed Three weeks before the bank robbery. So the bank robbery was August 28th. So he was killed, like, at the beginning of August. Forensics somehow determined that Jim, Marjorie's ex, was killed in Marjorie's house, which is what Bill was saying. Marjorie's house in Erie. However, however. However. It was super hard for them to find these clues because she's a fucking hoarder, too. They okay. described, they again, we got video and pictures, but they described it as clutter, feces, and more <gasps> clutter. 
Like she also apparently didn't. Species or like human. They didn't say. She also apparently, quote unquote, didn't trust banks, so she kept all of this cash on hand, just around, just around, and as well as stacks of government cheese. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. They did also, very sadly, have to call in the Humane Society because she had... Cats. A bunch of cats. No. And I, and I, think, I think they also found some that were deceased. Yeah, that's what happens with cat hoarder cases. Yeah. Oh, uh, God. I'm... So, of course, they're talking to Marjorie, who's saying, you know, she's innocent, Bill's out to get her. Marjorie's story is that she came home one day and Jim was dead. Mm-hmm. They had been dating for 10 years. They had a great thing going on. She thinks that Bill was jealous and that Bill maybe killed Jim. So now the FBI is taking a step back and they're saying, was Bill involved with Brian Wells? Because the investigator from the FBI walks in. So now they have Bill that they're interrogating in one room. They have Marjorie they're interrogating in another room. Mm-hmm. He walks into the room and the first thing that Bill says to him is... I'm the smartest guy in this room. They're like, oh, okay, Mr. Smart Guy. Um, did Brian Well, was there a relationship between Brian Wells and Marjorie's ex, Jim? Like, is there a connection there? Did they know each other? Mm-hmm. First, Bill says there's no correlation or relationship. And they keep pressing him. And he finally says, well, I'm just not comfortable talking about that. Okay, again. Brian Wells is dead. Bob Panetti is dead. They find this guy, Jim, Marjorie's ex in a freezer. The freezer is in Bill Rothstein's house, which is adjacent to the tower site where Brian delivered the pizzas. They're ha- they have to be connected, but they don't have any links to prove mm-hmm. it there. Right. So now I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Bill Rothstein, who, by the way, apparently only wears overalls except when he is at a wedding. <laughs> There's one picture they showed of him where he was the best man at a friend's wedding and like... He's not wearing overalls. He's wearing the actual, like, tux or, or whatever. But this is his look. Okay. Well, so you kinda... figure he probably felt comfortable because he was probably wearing suspenders. And, like, suspenders attached to the tux pants probably made sure. him feel like he had a had a um, sure, sure, sure. overalls on. So a lot like Marjorie, he's from Erie. He was never considered, quote, unquote, normal. He was, in Erie, considered to be a rich kid from a rich family which made him an outcast at school. Um, his family business was, they owned a bottling company in town. Really sadly, his, mm-hmm. his family was Jewish and he was apparently called a dirty Jew by some of the kids, which really breaks my heart. But for the kid yeah. Bill, not for like the grown-up Bill, because grown-up Bill made some rather unfortunate decisions. His friends say he was the perfect friend. He was okay. generous. He was nice. He was super intelligent. However, he wasn't really a quote-unquote finisher. And, like, he would start on a lot of projects and he'd get, or initiatives and he'd get really close to something, but then he'd move on to something else. Um, people noted that as part of his intelligence, he spoke fluent mm-hmm. French and Hebrew in, in addition to English. So, yeah, he is a really smart guy. He is the kind of friend who will put a goddamn body in a freezer for you, but he will not put it in the wood chipper. So, um, in 1974-75, uh, He had met Marjorie a few times. His friends didn't really like Marjorie, but 
they said he had a thing for her that kind of went beyond a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship. Um, and as evidenced by him putting the body in this freezer, somebody was like, well, why would you do that for her? And he didn't really ever have a concrete answer for the friends who asked that. Uh, they were engaged at one point, Bill and Marjorie, uh, but that got mm-hmm. broken off for some reason, which Marjorie tells us about later, but that's a totally separate story. It gets a little, gets a little intense. Foreshadowing. Um, because Bill at that point was cooperating with the police about this whole body in the freezer thing, he is free on bail. Um, they go back and show Bill walking through the house again with the investigators after it had been cleaned up quite a bit. Just show, again, walking them through, like, I was here when this happened, I was here when that happened, and then, mm-hmm. like, this is where, how we brought the body in, this is, you know, and this is the freezer. So they ask him while he's showing them around, they're like, where did you get that those cuts on your arm? I couldn't really hear that part too well, but I saw them gesturing towards his arm, and Bill said, oh, it was, it was a really stupid suicide attempt. Um, and he goes, yeah, you know, uh, better now, but... You know, I wrote out some suicide notes and I like had sent them to the police or given them to the police. Did you see them? So then they show the first page of the suicide note. It's a bunch of different numbers. Like it's like a bulleted li- numbered list, right? And number one, number one, Katie, this has nothing to do huh. with the Brian Wells case. <laughs> that was number one on his list. It's like my kids telling me like this has... Literally nothing to do with the fact that we're fighting, but that girl's going to come up here and tell you that I slapped her. And like, what? Just um, item one. Um, this has absolutely nothing to do with uh, this other thing um, with the dent in your car. But I did throw a basketball out the basically, window earlier. Basically, yes. Towards your it's car. like, what? Like, okay, he but might know French and Hebrew, but he's real bad at this business, let me tell you. Yeah, the Machiavellian no. game theory is yeah. not perhaps. Uh, we the also learned that before here. the bank heist, that Bill's family was in a bit of a feud. And that his siblings had wanted to sell the Peach Street house where he lived. But Bill was the executor of his parents' estate. And he didn't want to sell, so they were getting into a fight about it. They apparently needed some cash to settle the estate. So he told his siblings he put the house on the market for $90,000. However, he listed it for $250,000. And the realtor said, you know, this is a really high number for this house. And let me tell you, after looking at the videos of this shithole, this was a very high. Like, it could be a perfectly fine house. I'm assuming somebody spent that amount of money to fix it up, but no. It's got good yeah. bones. Um, it's got good so the bones. The realtor's like, you know, it's kind of high for this house. But Bill apparently just, like, would not move from the $250,000 mark. And is it a coincidence that it was $250,000? And that $250,000 was also the amount that Brian was asking for. But for no reason. the bank. For no other reason. You tell me. Um, So the investigators are obviously super suspicious at this point. So they send Bill to go get a polygraph. Of course, Mm -hmm. Bill 
I wonder if they're. I wonder if they are looking at the the suicide note like this, where it says this has nothing to do with the <laughs> Wells case, and he's just sort of. <laughs> but like, now, didn't think it did. Yeah. So now we definitely do. But then they interview the investigators, and they're like, "Well, he just figured he was smart enough to pass it." And I'm like, "But what passes for smart in this town when he's literally writing number one? This has nothing to do with the Brian Wells case. I don't know." So another interesting tidbit about Bill was that he had a roommate that had been living with him for several years. Floyd. Floyd Stockton, who was an old friend of Bill's, who apparently moved out and skedaddled out of town right after the bank heist. Floyd was living with Bill after raping a disabled teenage girl and was on the run from police in Washington State. Yup. (laughs) Katie just got up and walked out of the room, everybody. She's gone. Co-host out. The hey, better, Floyd. The better part is that the Jesus FBI Christ. didn't find out about Floyd Stockton until they heard about him from Marjorie Deal when they were bringing her into the police station. And she is saying, again, why are you arresting oh me God. when Bill has been harboring a fugitive in his house for two years who's wanted for raping this teenage girl, and you're arresting me? Which, yeah, I'm, again, she didn't sound insane then. I'm like, yeah, I'm with Marjorie on this one. I mean, Marjorie obviously knew that that guy was there too, and she could have called the police, so I'm not giving her any credit about that. Um, So they find Floyd Stockton, and he claims to know nothing about the Wells case, and also passes a polygraph. So the FBI clears Bill, and Floyd. I Be thought the polygraphs were not supposed to. Um, yeah. So to the FBI is like, like that crucial. Yeah. Because they the can FBI is like these are not our guys, and the state police are like these are totally our guys. <laughs> the FBI. <laughs> our guys? maybe they're not your guys, but um, they are obviously and they our didn't guys. Say, say you know it was it was wasn't the FBI. The FBI were basically like, nobody would have the balls to have a dead body in your freezer in the garage and then call a pizza delivery guy next door to put on a bomb around this guy's neck. They're like, nobody, nobody's, no one has the audacity to do that. And I'm like, have you met America? Have you met us? Also, just a little note, Bill seems to really match the FBI profile that they put together of someone who is frugal, fucking pack rat mechanical he's always like doing shit who has a hidden violent nature you know so he's like doing really profile so then they start interviewing a few of marjorie's friends so first they talk to susan susan robinson who is her friend who says she met marjorie in 1962 and they maintained their friendship for you know 40 50 years and she said when she met her, she she just had this magnetic aura around her and everyone was attracted to her. She also said she was so intense that after they got together and spent time together that she would have to go home and relax for a couple of hours because Marjorie was like that intense of a person. She also said that Bill was always somewhere in the background of Marjorie's life um, and that she could tell that Marjorie was happy to have someone she could relate to on an intellectual level that matched her own and that Bill fulfilled that purpose for her. 
Susan knew about her mental illness and she said, you know, sometimes she would call her and she, she would talk for like three hours was in Susan would eventually have to hang up on her because she just wouldn't stop talking. They also interviewed a man named Kenneth Barnes, who is a friend of Marjorie's and they're showing these interviews and she's, he's like, yeah, I've known Marjorie for nine years now. I knew Jim, who was her ex, her boyfriend or ex-boyfriend at this point. And he was like, we were fishing buddies. They met at a pier in Erie. Um, and so the three of them would go fishing all the time. He said Jim was basically like, you know, her little puppet. She really controlled him. They fought all the time. They were really physical with each other. And she would tell him all the time that she would kill him, <laughs> which I was like, what a great relationship. But Jim would just be like, oh, that's that's her mental illness talking. That's her bipolar. When she's not feeling the effects of her mental illness, she's this wonderful person. And then she has these rough patches. They also talked to a friend, Agnes, um, who's a little older. She, Agnes is in her 70s. So I just thought this was like a really interesting interview with her. She said she met Jim and Marjorie on the same day. The day that she met them both, Marjorie took Agnes aside and said, hey, do you know how I can get rid of this guy? <laughs> do you have like a knife or a collar bomb or a shotgun or? And she mentioned to Agnes that mm-hmm. she had been in jail before. So Agnes said, you know, me and my friends, like we just kept talking about that and wondering like what she had been in jail for. So eventually they took a little trip to the library and went looking through the archives, and they found out that in 1984, she had shot and killed her boyfriend. And that her boyfriend was um, sleeping on the couch, and she walked up and shot him. And she claimed self-defense, saying that he had been so abusive to her over the years, she felt her life was in danger, so she had to kill him when she was asleep. It's the only way she's going to be able to leave this abusive relationship. So... That's just, I think, one of the five men that was mentioned earlier that had died this death. They also talked to John Rothstein, which is Bill's brother. And in the police interview, he's saying, yeah, all of our family money that we had from the family business just disappeared. And my mom and I were always asking Bill, like, where things went. He could never have an answer for us. John and his mother suspected that Bill was in some sort of criminal activity or trouble with criminals because he was basically just had bled like all the money that the family had accumulated. And John said he's super intelligent, Mm -hmm. but he has literally no common sense. And that Bill had called John on uh, a Saturday recently and said that he had tried to kill himself. And John had asked Bill what that was all about. Like, why would you do a thing like that? And he said, well, I can't tell you. Cute, cute look. Uh, He didn't mention, he said he didn't mention Marjorie at all in that conversation. Um, And really sad, John seemed like a really nice dude. And really sadly, uh, when I was doing my research, I found out he died in 2006 from esophageal cancer, which was sad. Oh, wow. They also had, at this point, this was not a police taped interview, but this was uh, a tape of a telephone interview with Marjorie from the barracks, I guess, or jail or prison. But basically, it sounded like someone had asked Marjorie, how did you know Bill? How did you meet Bill? And she said, I want you to know that I was a virgin when I met Bill. And let me tell you. I was half a virgin when I met him. (laughs) And let me tell you, that man is a pervert. He wanted oral and anal 
all the time. She said, we got together and broke up several times. Uh, we were engaged at one point. We broke up. That was 35 years ago. And he's never been with another woman. Which she sounded very, like, proud of. Just weird. Yeah. Um, she said, I have a very serious mental illness, but I am not violent. And he has a lot of money issues, and I wouldn't lend him any of my money. And he was just basically so enthralled with me that Bill wanted me to get rid of Jim and marry Bill. Okay. So in a nutshell, Bill was saying, Marjorie killed her ex, wanted me to help out with getting rid of the body. Marjorie's like, no, I think... Bill killed Jim because he wanted to get with me. We, we cut to Bill's attorney <laughs> giving an interview. And he was saying, they talked to his attorney. He was like, yeah, you know, he was really well liked in my office. Like he's just charming. And like all of the administrators and front office workers really liked him. And after Bill had talked to the FBI, he said, we hadn't really heard anything, so we thought that their interest in him had just, you know, kind of waned and that they weren't going to be pursuing anything. And his, the way he was behaving, again, he was so calm and just, there was no anxiety about him. So they basically felt like there was just nothing to worry about with the case. So then in January of 2004, Marjorie's in court facing murder charges for her ex-boyfriend, Jim, uh, but she never testified in that case. Bill testified in that case, and Bill said that Marjorie told him that she had killed him. He was only going to end up in jail for a few years for a charge of abuse of a corpse, which was a misdemeanor. Um, and he could stay out of jail pending trial and sentencing because, he, again, he was cooperating and, and provided his yeah. testimony. So yeah. Marjorie keeps saying, you know, you should be looking at Bill, but then she also drops this bomb that said, oh God, again, another poor choice of words. I did not mean a literal bomb. Marjorie drops this knowledge on everybody and says, you know, you should really charge Bill with murder in the case of Brian Wells. And the FBI shouldn't trust him at all because he was harboring this fugitive for two years. And I was the one who told the FBI about it. Like, why aren't you looking at this guy? Um... No one got to the bottom of why, like, why he would put the body of Marjorie's ex-boyfriend in the freezer. And they were like, again, like, this kept bothering people um, in law enforcement and outside. They're like, why would you freeze? Like, why would you do that? Like, if, why wouldn't you just help Marjorie get rid of the body? But getting rid of the body doesn't mean putting it in your freezer. Like, it's just, they were just bizarre. Um, right. And he's just like, meh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, oh. Uh. So we cut back to one of Bill's friends they had talked to earlier who had been saying he was just such a great friend and nice and would do anything for you. And he said, you know, our last few conversations that we had, he started to get really mean and his personality really changed. And his friend was like, okay, something is, is really wrong here. And then we cut to the lawyer saying he lost a lot of weight over six months. And he's like, I feel like an idiot now because... I complimented him on his weight loss. And then the next month I got a call saying the bill was in the hospital and he wasn't doing well. And it turned out he had Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so he, he was, you know, very close to death at that point. So the state police go to interview Bill when he's in the hospital and really doing poorly. And they were really like, look, Bill, if you know something about 
Brian Wells, like, you need to tell it. That's not something you want to take to the yeah, grave. Now's the, now's time. the time to tell us. Yeah. And they said he couldn't even talk, but basically he took his finger and wrote no in the air with his finger. Wow. And he died a couple of days after that. And he he was only 60, so he died in 2007. Oh. And the law enforcement said they believed it was his, his kind of final way of saying, I'm smarter than you and I'm not going to tell you anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So at this point, the only ties between Brian Wells mm-hmm. and all these other shenanigans mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. that the pizza drop-off point was really close mm-hmm. to the house. Yep. And that the suicide note said, by the by, this doesn't have anything to do with that. <laughs> Correct. And that Marjorie goes, you know... It really does. <laughs> <laughs> but that's so far, that's the only yeah. real connection. Correct. Okay. Wow. Now we're interviewing a woman named Gloria. Gloria okay. was in prison with Marjorie for about three months in 2003. She said at some point, she was so sitting wait, in Mar- a- wait, 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 wait. Marjorie yes. was in prison at this point for the Or I'm murder? sorry, this was had, sorry, not 2003, 2003. 2004. Um, yeah, so Marjorie is in prison for Jim's murder at this point. Got it. Got and it. She got it, says, got it. Gloria was sitting at a table with someone that Marjorie didn't like. Okay? Yeah. Later that day, Marjorie comes up to Gloria and says about the person she didn't like, she wanted to bash her head like a watermelon and watch the seeds pop out. Cool. Very, uh, yes. very uh, Gallagher. Yeah. To which Gloria says, I guess it doesn't pay to piss off the freezer queen because you'll end up an entree. <laughs> I don't know why uh, Gloria was in the clink, but that is some gold. Right. right and she apparently said that to Marjorie, which Marjorie also thought was hilarious. And so Marjorie then was like, Gloria, you are my friend. <laughs> Which means Marjorie is talking to Gloria a lot. Okay. Interesting. And Marjorie ends up confessing to Gloria that she killed Jim. And she tells... Well, I mean, honestly, I never really doubted that. Right, right. So Marjorie tells Gloria and her cellmates that she and Jim had a fight about another woman. And that Gloria says she had zero remorse for any of this. Of course, it sounds like Marjorie wouldn't. So she just starts talking about Marjorie's bizarre behavior in prison. She said, so um, did you see Orange is the New Black? You watched that, right? Yes. Okay. So you Most know, of, I mean, up until a certain point. Yeah, I stopped after the prison riot thing. I was like, it's just not good anymore. Um, That's so, the one. you know, in the bathrooms, how instead of actual mirrors, they kind of had that, um, it's like a really shiny metal plate with a reflective yeah. surface, right? So you, it's not dangerous and you can't like break it and cut somebody yeah, you with can't, it. You, yeah, you you can't make a shift. Yeah, yeah. Right. She said Marjorie would stand in front of one of those for hours shaving off her eyebrows. Hours. She was like, I don't understand. It takes like two minutes. One, two, you're done. <laughs> she would stand there for hours. And she said she did this. Yeah. No, not plucking. Shaving. No, I know. I'm like, oh, imagine this is, is a that little... you shaving? Okay. Yep. 
She said she, that Marjorie had one face for the guards and one face for the the inmates, right? Because yeah. she was trying to make herself look super crazy in front of the guards because Marjorie fancied herself to be this master manipulator. And she mm-hmm. told Gloria and her cellmates that if the DA got too close to her, she would, quote unquote, play the crazy card. So Marjorie ends up requesting... Uh, a plea deal for Jim's murder where she will plead guilty to third degree murder, but she's going to plead. I, maybe this is a Pennsylvania thing, guilty, but mentally ill. Okay. And so in theory, she could be paroled with um, a seven year minimum sentence. If, okay. if that all went down, the producer of this Netflix documentary, his first name is Trey. And I'm not going to try to pronounce his last name because I didn't look it up ahead of time. And I'm looking at it now and it's not going to happen. So I'm sorry to Trey, but it starts with a B. He has been writing. He finds out, you know, Marjorie's in jail. He has been writing to her to try to establish a rapport with her. And at this point, she writes back to Trey and says she's familiar with the Brian Wells case. And she was going to reveal secrets the public didn't know if Trey and his team could do something for her. And she asked for legal help or cash consideration in return for these secrets. And that is going to be the end of the first Cliffhanger! Cliffhanger! How dare you! I know, it's so good. Lizards, uh, tune back in next week when we hear the conclusion to this bonkers tale i'm just gonna tell you it's a bomber it's not what you think whatever it is that you're thinking it's not that i mean i just lodged my guess and if if i'm being told it's not that then we you know that's the best i could lodge i mean it's just put together uh, yeah wow all right lizards come pop a bottle with us next week and we'll hear the end of this uh you can find us at our personal accounts or our Wine Times Pod account. We are at uh, Instagram and Twitter at Wine Times Pod, or you can email us at winetimespod at gmail.com or at our individual accounts. I am at Katie Haas. MM is at True Quime. True, 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 true Quime. Crime. Wine. Red leather, yellow leather. Red leather, yellow leather.